It is no exaggeration to say that the current regime in elite college admissions has been far more successful in democratizing anxiety than opportunity. That's not me. It's Jerome Carabell. He wrote a book called The Chosen, The Hidden History of Admission and Exclusion at Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. You can guess what our topic is this week. My name is Luke Nonis Hunter. I am a senior at the High School for Math, Science, and Engineering and a recently admitted student at Olin College. Uh, and I'm just really happy to be here. Uh, I'm Gavin Sweeney. I'm a college counselor uh, with a company called CollegeWise here in New York City. I'm a former admissions counselor with uh, the University of Rochester, and I have a, a podcast. It's called The Crush, and uh, I talk to a lot of different people about college and college admissions-related uh, matters. Hi, my name is Leah Petty. I am a high school guidance counselor of 10 years. I work at a public high school in Manhattan, and I'm a political activist also living in Brooklyn. If you found yourself intrigued in recent months by the freshest scandal around college admissions, maybe wonder beyond the headlines about some of the more root causes of our higher ed admissions challenges in this country, then this episode is for you. My guests are experts in this space that you wouldn't have seen quoted in recent coverage, but maybe should have. We have loads of work to do on college admissions in this country. We have a busted narrative that inflates the practical and emotional value of the elites. We have inequitable benchmarks for measuring qualified candidates and a staggering shortage of counselors made that way by ever sparse school budgets and a total misunderstanding about what it takes to do that job fully and for everyone. But we also have some hopeful trends that we talk about in more depth with some experts who really understand the details of where we are at this moment in time when it comes to learner trajectories beyond the 12th grade. I really enjoyed this conversation and hope you do too. Before we get going, please check out No Such Thing Podcast on Facebook and like the page. Better yet, scroll down to the listener survey and help me know more about who's listening, how I can continue to produce episodes that pique your interest, improve your practice, and help you scratch that edu geek itch. That's facebook.com slash no such thing podcast. Thanks a ton. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about the promise and reality of learning with technology. I'm Mark Lesser. It's really easy to jump into some of these topics and feel like, you know, you're going to boil the ocean and and explain away, you know, or uh, explain ourselves into everything there is to know about uh, what's right and wrong with the college admissions process. I don't think we're going to be able to do that. I think what we should aspire to do instead is the metaphor that was coming to me this morning is more like um, what vision, not that I've ever been a paleontologist, but when I picture one being in the field, like brushing away the dust and dirt slowly, um, that's what it feels like we can accomplish is just to like start to take away some of the layers that have grown over this thing Um Especially at this moment in time when uh, with all of the drama surrounding college admissions at the moment, um, I think folks, you know, it's like it, there's a lot of conflating of issues and misunderstanding about what the actual um, issues are, not necessarily in the case of the scandal that happened most recently. But but um, when it comes up, it tends to come up in one big chunk. Um, so. To have three experts in this space with me today, uh, 
uh, is super exciting because um, it's an area where uh, I'm trying to learn a lot. And um, I say expert, though um, the experts probably wouldn't all call themselves experts. I remember talking to Leah early on and she was like, yeah, I'm not really a college counselor. And, and um, but there's a really specific reason I wanted you here. And Luke is obviously a student, uh, but you are an expert by virtue of the fact that you're the, the uh, latest of us to be through this process uh, very in the very immediate uh, past. So I actually wanted to start with you, Luke. Uh, first of all, congratulations again on your acceptance. Thank you. Headed Thank to engineering you. school in the fall. What was it like? Tell us about your last year. And I'm interested not just in the mechanics of you applying to school, mm. um, but I'm also interested in what impact it's had on uh, your senior year. Like, was this the year of applying to college or did you accomplish other things? Yeah, no, I definitely think that this year became the year of applying to college. Um, you know, I worked really hard freshman to junior year trying to build good grades, make a good resume, kind of, you know, unawaringly I started, you start to build this resume so you can apply to college. And then senior year, I think I kind of took it into full gear and full drive and you know, college became the main point of everything. And it was all about writing those essays and applying and visiting schools. And if you needed interviews or supplements or letters of recommendation and it, yeah, it definitely, it took over my life in many ways, but while it was definitely a very stressful and time consuming process, I, now that I've come out of the other end of it, I'm really happy with the results that I got. And I think that the time that I put into it was worth it, no matter mm -hmm. how stressful it ended up getting. I, I only wish I had more mics and we had more students uh, to talk to, because obviously that's not the experience of everyone. But I'm curious what you were seeing with uh, your classmates around you. Um, what were the things you were noticing about what it um, did to or for your peers? And, and um, were there were there other stories around you that that didn't end up um as as uh, roses and puppy dogs as yours? Yeah, no, I definitely got very lucky, but a lot of my friends, my very close friends, who I think might have deserved it even more than I did, didn't end up getting it. And I'm kind of still puzzled as to why. Um, you know, I go to a public high school in the city, but also happens to be a specialized public high school in the city. So there is this expectation that you're going to go to a prestigious college, maybe a, nam a name brand, something that, you know, your parents know. And when you talk to someone else, they'll be like, oh, you know, of course I know that place. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of kids will maybe try and head for that and try and, you know, strike gold and hit all those schools. And some of them will get in and some of them don't make anything. And then they end up going to a safety school that they applied to just because and not because they actually really wanted to go. Um, and I think, yeah, it was everyone was very they threw all their energy into it that i know that i knew and uh not everyone really got what they wanted out of it and i was a little surprised by that to be completely honest yeah devin you've been in this space for a long time and um, i think a lot of people are curious like yeah my my kids aren't getting into school either and everybody's sort of um there's a lot of hive mind around like um, colleges are over subscribed and nobody's accepting and acceptance rates are actually going down. 
can you can you school us a little bit on what the actual state of things is mm-hmm. uh, in terms of acceptance rates and and just what's actually happening in relation to young people? Uh, let's start with the idea that we're all on an equal playing field applying in it through a competitive process and we'll deconstruct that that as we go but right. let's assume that what's actually happening i mean i could also you know maybe push back a little bit on that on that the fact that that it is necessarily a competitive process for everybody because it isn't um the narrative you know that drives the conversation that we have about college that drives the anxiety that people have about going to college, specifically at, at, at in environments where, uh, like yours, Luke, where everybody is is definitely focused on going to college, is really driven by those that are highly selective, right? The famous ones, the highly coveted ones, the ones that are hard to get into. You know, the things that we can't have are the things that we want the most. You know, uh, in life, and so I think that this is what um, tends to be the case. Unfortunately, though, the overwhelming majority of people in this country that go to college don't have to submit to this highly selective process. You know, applying to the City University of New York system is really easy. Um, and the schools are unbelievably fantastic and have like a really long, amazing history in our uh, country of being fantastic places. You know, when the Ivy League institutions wouldn't take Jewish people, um, the city university system was there, specifically City College was there to give them the opportunity, a free opportunity, which doesn't exist anymore, um, to do amazing things. Uh, and students are still doing amazing things at those schools that regularly rank near you know, the top of schools making the biggest impact in terms of social mobility. So I think it's important first when we talk about all this stuff to unpack um, college admissions from selective college admissions. But selective college admissions is what drives the narrative for a lot of reasons, not least of which the people that write about it all went to the Columbia School of Journalism and places like that. And so mm-hmm. those are, as far as they're concerned, the, the schools, that's college, but it isn't college for everybody. So to answer your question, um, yeah, it's getting harder to get into those places because more people are have access to those places uh, than they used to, right? So for instance, there are, um, there's a, this country called China uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. that- um, I've heard of it. Yeah, rings a bell. Um, that has come into an absolutely unbelievably unbelievable mountain of wealth in you know over the past few decades you know as a function of of their the development of their economy, um, and so now you've got more people with more mobility outside of the United States to come to what is widely regarded as the best system of higher education in the world than ever before, and mm-hmm. so China, India, Vietnam. Uh, so on and so forth. Like these in Korea, these schools are the places, students in these countries are all applying into the system now. And so what that does is it adds, you know, applications to the pool, which drives the, the admit rate down. Um, and so, yeah, like you, you, I think, I think I saw in the show notes, you sort of linked to that, that article that, that was, uh, the, the, the uh, the tongue in cheek article, of Frank Bruni talking about Stanford achieving the highly coveted 0% admit rate. Right. Um, you know, uh, this year, I think they probably sent, you know, denial letters to, uh, children in utero, uh, just to, just to <laughs> cut, undercut that a little more. Um, so, but at so the end of the to, day, to clarify, that's the, that. the Bruni story was it's fake. Yeah. Yeah, so it it wasn't it was satire. It was intended as satire right. by him. Um, 
But they're yeah. basically the admit rates at these places are five and 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 below. a little bit below, I think, yeah. in this case. Uh, and so everybody says it's impossible to get in. The only schools that matter are the ones I can't get into. Therefore, I'm just in a state of anguish about it. And uh, and and it's really unfortunate because it doesn't have to be the case. Yeah, because there are, there's a very something like 85 percent of schools that have an admit rate of over 50 percent. Over 50 percent. Right. I mean, the point of, you know, like, so for instance, Arizona State University, they take something like 77% of the students that apply. Um, what a lot of people in this city, uh, you know, that are focused on college who maybe went to college and went to colleges are very famous and maybe it was easier to get in back then, mm. you know, look at a school with a 77% admit rate and they say, well, how can that be a good school? Right. And the point at Arizona State University is for them to admit all kinds of people mm. so that you can have all kinds of experiences with those people so that, you know, as the president, his name is Michael Crow, he's a really interesting guy. He says that where you're going to go to, you know, colleges that have, you know, uh, most highly selective places, we'll talk about a Native American student population of under 1%, uh, whereas at Arizona State University, there will be, you know, several thousand Native students there, you know, where else in this country can you get that, right? And so, you have to have uh, really, I think, expand your imagination a lot about what college is and what you can do there um, to understand what it means to go to a place that have a, has a 77% admit rate as opposed to a 5% admit rate. Yeah. Luke, you were going to jump in. Yeah. And actually, just to add on to this admit rate idea, admit rate, especially amongst, I think, the kids, it kind of becomes, you know, you, the same way that you brag about how many social media followers followers you have. You also would brag about how low your admit rate is. You know, if I'm better than you because I go to an, a school that has an admit rate of 5% and you're only at seven, like, you know, and that is like a way of... um that's a way of like saying that you're better than them or, you know, one upping the other person. Um, and, you know, for me, I applied to um, to a school that had a very high acceptance rate, but I was really excited about applying and it was a very viable option for me. And a lot of kids kind of went to me and were like, dude, you're applying there. Like you have good grades. You're at this great school. Like you shouldn't be going there. Like that's such a high admit rate. And I was like, I don't think you understand the whole picture there. This is such a great school, and I think you're missing out on the opportunity if you aren't looking at it seriously. Did you really say that to your peers? I thought it in my head. But, you know, <laughs> I was going to say, you might be the yeah. most courageous you yeah. Know, yeah, no, young no, man no. I've ever met. Um, no, I just I thought it very loudly. You know, <laughs> right. I was hoping they'd be able to hear. That's that's. I wouldn't have even thought it loudly when I was a kid. It was like I would have maybe, maybe uh, just thought it. Um, Leah, what's, what's, so you are, um, high school guidance counselor mm -hmm. in a campus I have, whose halls I have walked many, many times. Um, I know your student body fairly well, actually personally, I know, um, you know, lots of them cause they come through our doors. Um, I'm, I'm curious for your students and for a guidance counselor, Davin kind of just described this, um, you know, this myth, for lack of a, I don't know what else to call it, this kind of mythology that we've all bought into. And you have a lot of students at your school who are first gen, uh, first generation, to, will be the first generation of college. Sorry, I abbreviate, even though I shouldn't. <clears throat> um, many, many students of color. 
um, uh, many students who are just so many different circumstances. Um, and I'm curious about the what you see as kind of the knock-on effects of buying into this mythology. And, and what do you deal with day-to-day um, that strikes you most? I'm sure there's a ton, but... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting because I, um, you know, I read the 530 article on called Shut Up About Harvard and it really resonated with me because it speaks to all the scandals and what it exposed about the lengths that, you know, very elite and wealthy families will go to, but then largely ignores the kind of lived reality of the vast majority of college um, going students who live a very different kind of life and have very different kinds of, of access and expectation of college. And so that resonated with me because that's the schools that I've worked in in New York City. So this is my second high school in New York. I worked in Bushwick um, prior to the school that I'm in right now with a very similar um, population. Um, and I guess what what saddens me about that this narrative, which is, you know, you even think about like all the movies you watch about college, they're all set in these like, you know, suburban elite kind of schools, even cartoon representations of college have a certain kind of expectation that uh, a narrative that's very different than the vast majority of the students in my school that are going to go to CUNY, you know, school and stay in the city and live with their parents while they're going um, to school. So even though that's their lived reality, which is far from, you know, the scandals rocking um, the newspapers, that narrative still has a pretty devastating impact on them because it's still the the narrative that they think that they should, you know, um, and can um, achieve. And then at the same time, everything is sort of stacked against them and actually achieving um, that kind of life. And so even though it is absolutely a mythology, it's a mythology that has a real like devastating impact because the sense of self-worth, if you don't get into, I'm talking like SUNY, you know, schools, mm. four-year colleges, leaving the state, you know, that's still elite for many of my, um, many of my students. Yeah. And so the loss of not getting into those schools, you know, is still just as devastating as it is to a student attending some elite high school, you know, in the city that doesn't get into a Harvard, you know, for example. And so I think that that, um, no one likes being rejected, but the, the scale of the rejection, you know, and the, and the belief that I, you know, I also went to Brooklyn college. Like I believe in the CUNY, you know, system. I think there's a great education you can receive from that. And it's interesting because my students, when that is the only school that becomes available to them, feel very, very disappointed. They still feel like that's something that they, you know, have to do. They're going to stay home and live with their parents. And so I think kind of, yeah, interrupting and interrogating that narrative is very, um, very, very important. Because um, I think it has an impact on all students in New York City, whether they're coming from elite schools or not. Yeah. And, and the truth is, like, well, growing up for me, uh, I went to public school, but it was a competitive public school in a suburb. And, um, it was like, everybody wanted to, there were these tears and it was like, you definitely didn't want to end up in county college. And if you ended up at like a state school, okay. Um, but ideally it was Ivy league or, or you said name brand Luke, which I, I is kind of hysterical, but the truth is we kind of need, uh, more families thinking about uh, the assets of of two year schools, county colleges, um, and so this to me feels like a major, you know, like we need to figure out a way to change a narrative that's so embedded 
uh, and deeply ingrained. And even though it, it sort of plays out differently from one neighborhood to the next, it all kind of has, has similar roots. Um, I wanted to come back to you, Davin, the, the question of, we talked about admittance rates, but, um, even if, you know, 85% of schools are still admitting over 50% with the number of kids going to college now or with promise of going to college, do we have enough room either way? Yeah. And in fact, we're going to have, we're going to have a crisis, a demographic crisis by the time my six-year-old daughter is going to college where um, the population of college going students in this country is going to, is going to take a gigantic dip um, for a variety of reasons. And it depends on state to state, but overall our national birth rate dropped by about like four or 5% uh, during the recession. And the knock on effects of that are massive in terms of all kinds of things. I mean, uh, but what that means is that by, you know, 2030 or 31 or 32, um, you know, there's going to be a ton of room at colleges and colleges are going to be scrambling to fill the seats and get the tuition revenue that they need to provide the education in those schools. So yeah. what does that mean for different levels of selectivity? The ones that are coveted are always going to be coveted, but it's the next tiers down uh, are all going to be scrambling to try to find um, not just students, but students who can pay. And so it's going to have impact for on, on how they, uh, on how they actually um, uh, finance the education for themselves and how schools finance the education for students. Uh, and it's a big friggin' deal. Um, in fact, there's a, uh, the guy that wrote the book called Demographics and the Demand for Higher Education. His name is Nathan Graw. He was a guest of mine. Uh, and he, he teaches at uh, St. Olaf College mm. uh, in uh, Northfield, Minnesota. <clears throat> um, but uh, it's a really, really interesting read. Very short, very dense, very economical uh, in nature, but, uh, but a lot of really fascinating data there. So yeah, we have plenty Plenty of room, plenty of room now, and uh, there'll be even more in the future. And so then there's another thing that's, you know, saying that the, the schools will become even more internationally uh, 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 composed uh, be, uh, of students from abroad because as, as they strive to to meet their enrollment goals with a, a deficit of, of domestic students uh, flowing into the system. Yeah. So that kind of that feels like a, a decent segue to the topic of of um, the relationship between like the economics of university colleges and universities in this country, um, and how admission works and how and the relationship to the the narrative we were talking about, right? So bear with me while I while I try to figure out what my question is, but but. You have um, a number of kids who go from ballooning to um, shrinking rapidly in, over the course of 10 years, right? Um, and colleges have to like flex one way or another to figure out how to uh, keep their whatever prestige and brand uh, they've built while at the same time admitting more and finding ways to have people pay for it. Um, it's a really, I, I think my question is like, it's an intricate economy and it begs the question for me of whether we're just doing it wrong generally. 
right? Like, is has there been, for you as somebody who's talked to a lot of people about other models of admissions, um, like, what are our options? It's a good question. I mean, the options that we have now are, are um, sort of varied and limited at the same time. So there are a lot of different institutions that, do, that choose to do it in a lot of different ways. But the one that we all know is like the common application, right? This is, um, you know, this, this great leveler that made it easier for more people to apply to, you know, more schools because they all took the same application and it just made it an efficient process. You know, that's one of the reasons that a lot of people say uh, applications have, have gone up and admit rates have gone down because it's become easier for people to apply to some schools than ever before. Um, but then there are other schools, uh, there are certain state systems. So for instance, the CUNY's got its own sys, uh, own application, you know, University of Texas, University of California system, like all have their own separate uh, application mm. processes. There are schools that do, you know, rolling admission, which is apply when you have the time and the inclination and we'll say yes until the class is full. Um, you know, community colleges are open enrollment. Like if you, you know, fill out the paperwork and submit your check, like like you're enrolled. Um, <clears throat> some are much more sort of elaborate competitive processes like the one that Luke went through at Olin, which he can speak to, um, you know, where students go through a, you know, a, a student-led, uh, you know, kind of project that is observed by people making a decision about who's going to come and be a student there. And, and so there are, uh, there are a lot of those kinds of options. And then there are other national models like take an exam. If you get the right score on this exam, then you're eligible at this university. If you get this tier of score, you're going to this one. And, and um, by the way, you need to know exactly what you're going to be for the rest of your life because you don't really have a lot of op this liberal arts approach doesn't really happen in many other countries except ours. So mm. you're sort of locked into engineering if that's what you're going to decide to do and you go to the engineering college in your national uh, system. Uh, there is none of this holistic review. There's no essay writing. There's no interviews. There's no touchy-feely part. Like, you are a test score. Um, and there's something that you know, I think makes a lot of people that, that, that people feel good about that. It's like, that's just easier. But on the other hand, you know, the you suicide rates in some of these countries are through the roof because the expectations are so huge and it's so tied up in that. Mm -hmm. So the national exam in China is called the Gaokao. Um, anybody listening, if you don't know about this, go ahead and do some searching on the New York Times and some other places to learn about it. Uh, there are entire like little micro economies set up around testing sites where parents come and literally camp to provide um, you know support for their students there. They're, the buses that leave the rural villages to go to the testing sites, it's mm. like a whole thing. They're lighting candles and prayers. Uh, and if you don't score well enough on that exam, you can't take it again for another year. So you you can't, there's not like next month, there's another option. Yeah. Like it's, so the stakes are really, really high. We talk about high stakes in terms of our entrance exams, but for some of these national entrance exams, the stakes are, are even higher. Mm. Um, so, so there are other options out there, but you know, there's none that's like a panacea. I'm, ju I'm jumping around, but it feels like we're, we're, uh, that's the right segue. You, you brought up the mental health issue. 
um, which is very real. And and so I want to ask a question that is actually not my first question, probably because my kids haven't applied to college yet. But um, I have a, a few nephews who have been through the process in the last two years. Um, and I think the question a lot of the either the families I work with, my immediate family uh, ask all the time is about, you know, what impact does this have on my kid and their mental health? Um Luke, I wanted to start with you, and then obviously, um, Leah, just have you talk a little bit about what you see. Yeah, um, I think that the co- college process as a whole has a huge impact on mental health. Um, one of my best friends is a first-generation immigrant here. It's going to be he's going to be the first one in his family going to college, and in before doing this process, his parents kind of came up to him and was like. Uh, we came to this country so that you could get a good education. So now go and get into Harvard and don't disappoint. And that put this huge burden on him. And now he's like, oh my gosh. So not only does the rest of my life seem to ride upon this situation that I'm in, but also the approval from my family. And now maybe even my friends are all going to ride on whether I get into a prestigious college or not. And everybody yeah. back at home, right? Who Yeah, and everyone back at home. have the opportunity. Exactly. It's like, so I'm the chosen one here. And now if I fail, it's like I'm disappointing everyone that I've ever known in my entire life. And I saw there were this one kid that I'm thinking of in particular, but I've seen multiple cases of this. And... Some kids end up achieving the goal and some kids don't, but either way, they come out like a new person. It is a huge mental burden to have to carry. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think that this ef- the mental effect is huge. And I mean, I don't really know how you I don't know. I can't think of a good way to potentially fix it, but I know that it's there and something needs to be done about it. Yeah. Leah, you, you, I'm curious to hear your thoughts, but also kind of over time, like, does it feel more severe now or are we just kind of, uh, from the outside realizing all of a sudden now that the issue is more acute, we're, we're sort of noticing it more. Um, is it, is it worse or has it always been this way? I mean, I think everything's worse. (laughs) I mean, I hate to say it, but I mean, I think we're having, we have a, we're in the middle of a mental health crisis, like in this country, the rates of depression, anxiety, these are happening irregardless of the college admissions, you know, progress. We live in scary times um, for a lot of people. If you're an immigrant in this country, you know, you have family members who are afraid for you to go to school, to walk around unaccompanied. Um, so I think that the levels of just anxiety um, and fear um, and depression, I think is my tenure as a guidance counselor, I think have gotten um, greater, I would say. Um, and even greater post-Trump for many of my students. So that's just kind of on its own. I think there's a mental health crisis. I think if you add the component of the expectation um, of going to college, I would say that maybe the vast majority of my students are, will be the first people in their families um, attending, attending college. I think, you know, I agree with you. It's an incredible amount of pressure, you know, an expectation. I think that's true for any 17 year old to I mean the fact that even at CUNY's you're declaring majors as you apply is a little mind-boggling to me I mean I don't think most 17 year olds I don't think those of us who are a little bit older like what we thought we were going to do when we were 17 is probably not what we're doing you know right now that's just life and so I think the expectation of that at such a young age um, is sort of wrong to begin with Um, and I think that the kind of move towards knowing your major and, you know, and sticking with it and knowing your career so early on. Some of it's the economics, like you mentioned. There's a need for, 
you know, jobs and people want to go to college in order to get, you know, a job and not just go to college to think. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, the loss of being able to go to a college to explore interests because in New York City public schools, you go to high school primarily to pass regents exams in order to go get into college. The exploratory aspect of most high school life in terms of taking all kinds of interesting, fascinating courses is not a lived reality for most students. So when I talk about college with my students, that's the aspect that I am most excited for them. You know, the idea that you're going to take these classes that you never even knew existed. You're going to explore all these um, subjects that you didn't even know you may have a strong passion for. Um, and I don't think our, you know, our students don't real don't have that opportunity to kind of go and explore. They have an opportunity to go pick a major, try and find a good job, not disappoint, you know, and do what they're kind of do what they're kind of told in a lot of ways. And so I do think it's an incredible um, amount of pressure. And again, that kind of the gap between the kind of narrative mythology of college and then what ends up happening for the vast majority of New York City public school students is also devastating for mental health, right? The, the disappointment that I mentioned earlier, the kind of, I thought I was going to go away, but it turns out I'm just going to stay here and work at my retail job and go to community college. You know, that's, it's disappointing, you know? Um, and I think it's about ultimately about access, you know, and having an admissions process that's accessible. You know, how easy it is to apply to CUNY, in my opinion, should be true for all schools, you know? Um, and I think that that is what's, you know, missing. I don't think people realize for first generation college goers, our school and our school college advisor and our school like senior teachers, we go through every single step of every single aspect of a college application with every student. They're very often aren't parents helping out at home, not because they don't want to, because they didn't attend college themselves. They're not familiar with the process. Mm. And so we're talking about like mouse click every step, you know, of each application requires someone sitting with students and going through that. Um, and so that's that's the amount of resources it takes just to get into, you know, basic, you know, four year colleges um, in the city, um, in the state. So the access question to me is just so massive. It's everything. Yeah, it's, it's everything. No. Um, how many students at Hudson? 450. 450. So obviously you have like a team of 100 counselors. Of course, of course. Right. There's actually more school safety agents in New York City public schools than guidance counselors, right. just to give a sense of priorities in the city. So there are two guidance counselors in my school. And two, one, two for? 450 students. Almost 500. And a college advisor. And we technically have it good. We're considered to be yeah. oh my gosh. a good guidance, you know, kind of team program rate ratio. Right. Mm -hmm. Talk about the demands in Oakland this past year where about, lowering a ratio of 600 students to one guidance counselor. Yeah. Yeah. So the question of ratio, I think, is very, very critical, um, along with the question of just resources more generally for schools. Yeah. That's a huge, I, like, I, I want to, that's, that for all of you listening who are looking for an issue to work on, <laughs> this issue of the disparity between um, the the number of high school guidance counselors, school counselors, period, um, and the number that's needed. Mm -hmm. Social workers is man. Get to I grew, work. I, you know, I grew up in Oregon in the nineties, and in nineteen ninety three or four, you know, they passed a ballot measure to limit, you know, property taxes for the sake of funding at public education. Yeah. And, and it's now 2019. And yesterday there was a massive rally in Portland, Oregon with thousands of people 
doing the exact same thing that I was doing in middle school, which is protesting the lack of uh, education funding. Uh, it's a national crisis that happens at every single state. It really has a, it has a gigantic, I mean, the, the impact is just so massive. Um, it is the reason why, you know, tuition has gone up at state schools. Um, it is uh, the reason that so I was recently at a uh, at a school in the South visiting since we're not naming names. Um, it's a it's a flagship school in the South. Everybody's heard of it. Fifty five percent of their students come from out of state. Um, Alabama is the third poorest country or uh, state in the country. Eight mm. percent um, of their students are African American. Almost all of them are in state. Uh, residents of Alabama, wow. right? Um, you and, said eight percent, right? You can please fact check that, but that's what comes to mind. And so, what that means is that they're not providing, they're not able, they're not providing any funding to folks out of state um, who would fit the bill as as, as African American um, because they're not spending money on that because they need the money from out of state to be able to operate. Yeah. So, um, this is happening all over the place that national system or state systems of, high, of, of higher education, you know, flagship universities, um, are seeing, you know, greater out of state enrollment, you know, think Michigan, think Berkeley, uh, et cetera. The, you know, te um, Texas is a little different because they, they admit, you know, it's like 90% of the people there are coming from the state of Texas, but, um, with, you know, absent priorities like that, you know, they, it's, it's, it's increasing difficult to provide access to your state residents, which was always the point, um, you know, of, of having those schools specifically when we talk about land grant universities, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, we're going to give you this land in this state to provide education to people in this state. So you can provide the education of people in this state. That's all gone now. So yeah, we've gone really, really far away from our original mission of providing a higher education to people in this country for the purposes of social mobility of local social mobility. We have have even greater mobility now than ever, which adds to this paradox of choice that we're all going through of like, where should I apply to college and stuff mm. like that, to the extent that you have the privilege to even consider leaving your town to go and do that. Yeah. But, um, but it's, uh, it, it's, it's a, it's a big problem. Um, and colleges recognize that it's a problem they can capitalize on a little bit by raising tuition and getting people that can pay the money because something like Michigan is very highly coveted, right. Or, mm. or whatever, but, um, they also need it to keep the lights on. I think the way that New York City schools get around that is that they just have the sorting machine starts when you're three, four years old in the city. My daughter is four years old. She's going to pre-K this year, last year, and she was the first student or one of the first kind of groups of students doing de Blasio's 3K program this school year, the first parent meeting of just to get to know the school, like orientation, I get like a book for like test prep for gifted and talented testing this is at There's three an industry three years old yep and you can pay for that at three years old the first sorting starts in the gifted and talented then your test scores in elementary school inform your middle school decision my nephew just got into middle school and his local like around the block from him it's like he got into college you know that's a level of like application stress and whatever then it goes into like the whole specialized high school system and that whole story so these are all public schools right that supposedly are equally funded um, but then the sorting kind of just gets worse and worse. And then we have, what, this year, seven black students getting into Stuyvesant out of 895 students. And so the funding issue, I think, is very interesting in New York City um, 
but it's also like even public schools in New York City have a whole different kind of um, sorting system that I think many people outside of the city don't realize. But yeah. if you live in the city, you know very, very intimately because it's intense for parents, you know, and for children. If you don't know the system, you're not a savvy parent. I mean, starting at age three, your story is already written for you. Yeah. That doesn't seem right. <laughs> state state a profound uh insight yeah it that ain't just, right man that just doesn't mm -mm. feel right mm -mm. um it's kind of like we haven't um we haven't decided what kind of uh i'm speaking kind of broadly but but specifically to higher ed it's like we haven't decided what and really dug in on what the values that drive our decisions as uh, a sector of higher education are in this country. It's like we did the liberal arts sort of, um, we did an approach that was more about enriching humanity. And there, there was an ideal there at one point. Um, I feel like we just, we, uh, we back away from that commitment more and more each decade, it feels like. Um, and it feels more and more like we're tracking kids into uh, decisions that they're not making themselves earlier and earlier on. Um, and I, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm just one, but uh, Leah, does it feel like uh, like, do, do you ask 15 year olds now what they want to do in their future? And you feel like, oh, it's actually no, it's changed so much. Now, 15 year olds know exactly what they want to do. <laughs> or like, am I nuts? Or I wanted to be the first baseman for the Mets. Mm -hmm. um, that was it. Right. Yeah. No, I think that there is a lot more pressure early on to have that figured out. And I think that the students that don't, which of course is going to be the vast majority of 14 and 15, you know, year olds not knowing what they want um, to do exactly, just get increasingly, increasingly disaffected by school because the whole school is driven towards um, that goal. And so the amount of students I counsel just to get them honestly to buy into high school as like an education that's going to get them somewhere is a difficult task, you know, in a school um, like mine. I have a student who's like, I, you know, I was just talking to you yesterday, like I have zero desire to be here. I mean, this is like, I, I don't get, I don't get the point yeah. of it. And then to explain the point of high school education, basically as a product that will get you to, you know, this next place that will get to this next place is a hard sell, you know, for a lot of students that don't see that trajectory um, in their own lives or in their family lives. And so I think that there's a lot more pressure and for students that are driven, have, you know, driven parents or have you know found some kind of passion um by chance i think it's very um it's disaffect you know it's disaffecting for many my wife's a developmental psychologist and and, and one of the things that i've come to learn sort of from her and from working with a lot of teens and, and stuff is is this this concept of the fact that um you know the 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 part of the brain that uh uh influences our ability to really think through our decisions in terms of their long-term impact is really not in place until our mid-20s no. and it's something that grown-ups seem to completely forgotten when we just talk to kids and say <clears throat> what are you thinking right i say it's my right. six-year-old 
right? Yeah. You know, it's like, well, no. I mean, it's all about the moment, and it becomes a little bit less about the moment until you're old, and it becomes about the regrets of the past and the yeah. anxieties yeah. of the future, yeah. right? But, um, but you, you, it's a really unrealistic expectation to talk to kids and just say, you know, trust me, it's going to work out, or hey, here's this giant decision that we'd like to place in your lap for you to just go ahead and think through in terms of all the knock-on effects for the rest of your life. Add to that the state of ang- the national state of anxiety around economics and the the existential threat that people are feeling as a result of it all, the expanding wealth gap, so on and so forth. And then the the, the stakes are now raised in terms of college as the motive as as the the engine of security there. And you can't kick the tires on a college education like you can any other commodity, mm-hmm. right? And it isn't a commodity, it's a service. And so um, it's all very faith-based, right? Uh, the adults that have been safely through the experience and are on the other side are saying, trust me, it's all going to work out, mm-hmm. right? Or, you know, do this and don't do that. And and the students have to sort of take it and say, okay, I guess I know what that means or not because their brain just can't really load that part yet. It's called yeah. the prefrontal cortex, right? It's there for a really good reason that we, we, we needed to be able to take more risks so that we could leave our tribe and expand our gene pool. Yeah. Um, but it makes it really hard for students to see long-term impacts of decisions, any decision, let alone something as massive and weighty potentially as where you're going to go to college. Yeah. Yeah. And to even add on to this, I think that, you know, As someone from New York City who has kind of been through this application process, what feels like over and over and over again, because you apply to elementary school and then you apply to middle school and then you apply again to high school. Um, When you apply to college, there's just a different weight about it because high school felt daunting already. Just the fact that I was going to have to pick what I would be doing for the next four years. But now college, there seems to be this weight that whatever I pick for college, this decision that I make this year is going to affect not only the next four years, Mm. but the rest of my entire life. And so not only recently, I've been thinking about not only the next four years, but what's going to happen when I have to retire and what job am I going to get? And oh, when I'm 60, do I want to take a vacation? And if Mm. so, does that mean that I can't go to a more expensive college or I should go to a more expensive college? And all these kind of things that are maybe irrelevant, maybe don't matter, but still I think a lot of high school kids start thinking about them and that kind of starts to overwhelm them. And it's overwhelmed me many times. And uh, it kind of scares you away from thinking like, oh, maybe this, you know, university, which is totally within reach and totally acceptable, but may not be, you know, the dream of mine, maybe the best choice for me because it has what I want and it I can do what I want there and I'll have a great four years and not even thinking about what's going to happen afterwards. Yeah, we, we and it begs the question of, um, David, I'm guessing you have uh, more up, up, uh, more specific data than I do, but but I, I know, you know, there are still some some indicators um, in terms of what the actual value of of college is, right? Like we know that statistically, yes, those with a, a four year degree tend to statistically be doing better. Um, but can you unpack that a little bit and like, yeah. what's the truth? Or the nuance. So there. for the actual like scoop, I would encourage folks to listen to my interviews. I've done two with a guy named Doug Weber, who's an economist at Temple. Awesome. Um, we talked first about the Excelsior Scholarship in New York and the uh, 
basic sort of policy flaws inherent in that. And then again, about the, this, this thing about the value of college and specifically uh, your major. And, you know, one of the things that he's been able to, 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 to help us understand is that on average, right, there's always outliers. Um, you stand to earn a million dollars more over the course of your lifetime with a college degree than without. So there is a real legitimate value in having that. Uh, it is the baseline measure for most, for a lot of employers now, such that in fact, to be competitive for a lot of jobs, you need to have an advanced degree, right? A long time ago, having a high school degree was the baseline measure and bachelor's degree was was the the sort of advanced right. standing. Um, so there's a real economic rationale to going to college. You know, when you talk about financing college and everything, taking on debt, everybody talks about, oh my God, debt, 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 debt. Well, there's some debt is good. Like we have car loans, we have mortgages. Like this is how we afford things now that we don't have the money now to afford and invest so that it makes our life better in the long run. Um, what happens that's, you know, so the, the loan default rates when people uh, uh, take out loans and, and, and aren't able to pay them back are much greater at like the $5,000 mark than they are at the $100,000 mark. Um, <clears throat> uh, because uh, a lot of the time, these are folks that only needed a little bit of additional funding because they qualified for aid and the rest of it. Mm. Uh, and so, uh, but, 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 so they're lower socioeconomic status. Maybe they have less financial sort of management education. Their parents don't really know what's going on with this. And so it, they, they don't know how to manage the, the payments. They've never had to do that before. Whereas somebody that has a hundred thousand dollars in debt is likely taking on something like that because they're going to med school or law school and they're going to figure that out and they'll be fine. Yeah. So inevitably, the debt problem is not the problem at the high end of the debt load, but at the low end of the debt load. And we don't really tend to talk about that. But as far as the, the economics of going to college, it matters much more what you study in terms of uh, salary when you graduate than where you do it. So there's a lot of data to suggest that if you study chemical engineering, it doesn't matter if you study it at Stanford or if you study it, uh, you know, at, uh, at at SUNY Albany. Uh, it doesn't matter at all um, because the skill set is the same, uh, and what you do with your college experience uh, is what matters more than than you know. You're not going to go there and just sit passively in class and come out better if you have the opportunity to, in a quantum state, go to simultaneously, you know, Harvard and a school that is ranked lower than Harvard, you know, you're not going to come out better if it was that experience, that passive experience happened at Harvard. Like you have to invest time and energy into it. And just to be, to be clear, that's, is that specific to chemical engineering or are you using that as chemical engineering is, is, is pretty much routinely regarded to be sort of the highest earning major on average. And at least according to, um, Doug Weber's, uh, research, the one at the low end of the spectrum was theology because you're not really in it for the money Hmm. when you're going for theology. Hmm. Right. Um, but on average STEM majors tend to pay higher than humanities and social science majors. Yeah. But again, it begs the question to me also always and, 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 you know, broader national conversation, what's the point of college? You know, it's, it's, you know, the outcome of salary on graduation is just one of the things, you know, uh, in terms of the, what you get out of a college education, but it's the one that, you know, in this economically sort of stressed period, people tend to pay the closest amount of attention to. Luke, what do you hope to get from college? Yeah. When... Like the real, give me the real, the, the real, real the thing you wish you said to your classmates that you did. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> well, 
you know, I think realistically what I hope to get out of college is enough knowledge to then go out into the workforce and get a job and be able to live like an adult because having a job is what it means to be an adult. Does it um, look does it look like a lot of fun to be an adult? Not as much as I thought it would be. <laughs> um, oddly enough, uh, parts of it are great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh I think you know, really if I could design my dream, if I could design my dream next 4 years. Great. It would be the opportunity to just explore a little bit of everything. And maybe it wouldn't be the most useful necessary necessary knowledge. Um but it would definitely enhance just my life and what it means to be human and just like no. it would just generally like make me more of a whole person no. and that would just be really exciting like to take a class all about for me well for me as a stem major a lot of english classes seem a little pointless and for me to be able to just explore a film history class or a greek classics or uh you know writers from latin america mm. like that would just be so exciting to me but i feel like because you know i'm going to be i want to be a computer scientist and i want to do stem taking those kind of classes is a waste of time and because it's economically stressed it's a waste of money mm. and so i feel kind of pressured to not do those kind of things um and actually as a as a student talking to a bunch of adults what would you guys say? Like, do you think that it would be better for me to experience the things that I want to experience? Or should I be like, computer science is my life. That's my job. I need to take, I need to boatload myself with all those classes and just do everything STEM. You said this thing. I'm not going to answer. I'm going to do the annoying thing where I just ask more questions, but but you said this thing that was, uh, but these guys should answer. Uh, we can all answer. Um, at one point you kind of like in a, in a self-conscious verbal moment were like, not necessarily the useful knowledge. And I don't even know if you heard it come out of your face, but it did. Um, and what I take that to mean is like, are the, are these things that you just described Greek classics or art history or, uh, political science or, you know, for an engineer, these are the things that um, you subconsciously somewhere we fucked up and, you know, like are we have a generation generations of young people who are now regarding those things as as useless knowledge. Um, and I th and I th I'm I'm not a. Um, uh, neither a, uh, a, a an expert in the classics or um, an ancient Greek, um, but but I think in what I know of the ancient Greeks was was that that story was was totally would have been totally on its head. Like I think um, for uh, thousands of years we did that better, where everybody considered knowledge additive no matter what you were doing like leonardo was both uh an engineer and an artist um and like he, he like the idea of siloing the domain and only doing that one thing um think about what we'd be missing in modern 
culture and, well, it's a and problem life, of, no- right? of nomenclature too, right? That like when you talk about the liberal arts, like the the Latin root yeah. of liberal doesn't mean you know Bernie Sanders voter, uh, but unfortunately, like this is what a lot of like you know dads at college fairs would tell me when I'm standing behind and say, well, we don't want them studying none of that liberal arts, you know, because it's like hippie crap. When in fact, it means the ability, the freedom uh, to study among different areas that includes the sciences and math. Um, And so that's the approach. And the approach uh, was set up for the moneyed class in this country uh, to go to the Princetons and the Yales and the Columbias and stuff to be able to study those things because they had the time, because they didn't have to worry because they were going to inherit all the wealth of their families, you know, that, that got them to those elite places in the first place. And so they had the freedom to develop their character. Like that was the point of going to college was development of character. And then it shifted into becoming a workforce preparation thing, you know, after we became, you know, more urbanized, uh, more, uh, uh, you know, more social mobility oriented period. And so that became the engine of social mobility and, and, and little by little. And obviously nowadays when we talk, you know, anywhere the word liberal is involved, like it's just fraught. And so there, there are a lot, there's a lot to unpack of like, what's a liberal arts college, what's a liberal arts education and stuff too, that, that, that that creates problems. what good is character if you don't have wealth and power, really? I you mean, would, oof, yeah. you don't want to be, you know, poor and powerless, but have I a lot of character. I think that's supposed to go the other way around. <laughs> yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. So how would you how would you answer Luke's question, Leah? You know, I don't have an answer for you. I mean, I, I have my... <laughs> of course we don't. <laughs> I have my experience, you know, and I... Um, I struggle with it because I think there's also it was also a privilege to be able to go. I went to Lewis and Clark College in Portland. Hey, Oregon. my hometown, Oregonian, um, and I studied sociology and anthropology. I absolutely loved it. I fell in love with the study. I didn't either take those classes in high school, you know, but I totally fell in love with it. I knew I wasn't going to be most likely a cultural anthropologist, you know, when I graduated. Um, but I also knew I wanted to like change the world, you know, and I think there's ways in which there's so much more even to your studies than the job that you get, you know, there's like a whole other world in life um, and exploration. I think as you become an adult, you realize that about your job. I'm, I'm lucky to have a job that I am also passionate about and I believe in public education and the right to an education, but there's a million other things about me that aren't encompassed right in my life as a guidance counselor that I got access to some of those things through college and through exploring other things like Latin American literature right that's going to be important to you as a human being regardless of what you know job that you that you get and so I think that um that's still considered like a privilege in this country and it shouldn't be but I do think I I did get the opportunity to go to college and explore um, and I explored things and took photography classes and I mean, I never, you know, got to do before and hadn't done since, but I really appreciated it in terms of what it taught me and what perspective it gave me um, on life. But I also, you know, I, I come from a working class, you know, family um, and I, I also kind of knew that like when I graduated college, like I was going to be okay too. You know what I mean? That like not everything depended on what I majored in in college in the same way the stakes might feel higher, you know, for a student that needs that specific degree to get that specific job to kind of get you know ahead I knew that I would come back and I moved to New York I was like 
a researcher. I worked secretary jobs. I was a nanny. I was a barista and then decided along the way to go back to Brooklyn College and get my master's um, in school counseling. But that was a long road, you know, Um, and you're not going to have it figured out right now. And so the more you can explore on and off your college, I think the better. I think just from a, from a, you know, practicing at at point two, you know, you can find evidence of employers like Amazon and Google and places like this that are saying like the skills that you need aren't Java and C++ that like we can teach you that, I guess, if it comes to that. But at the end of the day, you're going to need some different softer skills that are going to be more important to you in that in this economy, specifically because, yeah, there's gonna be a lot of robots and stuff, but like they're not going to replace like the humans are gonna have to figure out how to live with them and, you know, not be creeped out by them uh, and so on. And so understand the human condition is what the humanities are there for. And so like, it's a really, really important thing to do. I mean, critically important for somebody that's thinking about the ethics behind something like computer science. But one of the things that I I've I've heard from people at Google that is like, you know, um, comfort with ambiguity is a skill, you know, that they think people need Mm. when they work there. And it's like, how the hell do you sort of train for that? You know what I mean? And I think it's by studying in some place where there isn't black and white answers, right? It's doing some like very deep and critical thinking about stuff with a lot of gray in it. And that's the humanities. No, I don't want to answer your question because I worry. um, I think that you should ask everybody, you know, that the, that question. That's a great, yeah. Um, And I think you're going to get, uh, I think there would be lots of overlap and I think there'll be similar answers, but, um, I think you gotta, you gotta make sure that you're asking all kinds of different people, ask first generation people, ask, um, ask legacy, you know, legacy Ivy league kind of folks. Um, and I think you'll get different answers. And I think that, uh, privilege goes into those answers in line with this conversation that we've been having around, you know, how lots of this narrative about um, what education is for as is being sort of torn apart and driven in some ways by our uh, what happens economically in this country. Um, So my real hesitation in answering is that uh, I don't want to give you a, uh, a hindsight uh, privileged answer to a question that's really nuanced. I think you, it's different for everybody. Um, I'd love to think that you're going to get as much from um, art history classes as you are from, uh, you know, JavaScript 10, uh, you know, wherever you are about the time at the point, at that point. Um but I don't know, but I will, I will echo, um, Davin's point that, uh, I hear, I talk to a lot of recruiters from industry and, um, almost none of them say when I ask, you know, what are the top five things you're hiring for, um, three, at least, if not four out of five are typically not technical or engineering skills. It's usually, um, soft skills, uh, creativity, communication, uh, compassion, empathy, these kinds of things that, um, you know, they've seen a generation of engineers for long enough that, um, don't have, I'm saying engineering in this case, cause you're going to engineering school, uh, that don't have these things. So, um, a lot of that stuff, would you say is hard to teach people when they get there too? Right. Yeah. Um, 
that, you know, there's always, I know that there's a lot of continuing education that's going on at those tech companies. Yeah. And well, especially in a context tough where. Tough to teach compassion at a, if you're. Yeah. And on a timeline. Right. Like, I need you to deliver this thing by June. By the way, if you could not be a pain in the ass to work with, yeah. you yeah. know, that would be fantastic. Yeah. Um, I want to come back, though. Uh, like, where I where I want to. I want to ask one one question before I, I turn us a little bit in the direction of um, hopefully hope and some advice for uh, people who are listening to this conversation. One thing I really wanted to ask this group is how you guys feel about um, the potential. One thing we've done differently than a lot of European countries is, is uh, you know, the U.S. has this obsession with like 12th grade college. You know, it's like this very linear um, story. Um, one of the things I've, I have not successfully tried to talk with um, younger folks in my family about is like, do ga- do a gap year, do a, do gap years uh, to your earlier point about our, our, uh, you know, prefrontal cortex. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels like there's a really good scientific argument to make for um, like, you know, go get a job, do something for a few years and then go back. Um, I wonder, you know, are, are you guys who are working with a lot of um, young people who are going through this process? Do you advise that way or are you hearing more young people talk about that kind of thing? Or is it still just like college is now or never? Yeah, it's challenging. I mean, I think that I deal, you know, I deal with seniors a lot that um, just have school fatigue. You know, just the kind of grind, you know, of it every day, waking up, being, you know. Um, So I think there's definitely lots of students that I work with that want that break and want the kind of just space to breathe and maybe figure things out. Um, The challenge I have with that in, in my school is that, like I mentioned before, the amount of resources it takes to get students through that application process and through financial aid process. And we still have about 50% of our students who have not completed FAFSA, you know, and it's May, right? Because that step-by-step process, getting information from parents, having parents trust the school to give that information. Tell people what FAFSA is. Sorry, FAFSA is the Federal Financial Aid um, application. And um, it's much easier now than it's ever been, but it's still, you know, difficult for our students to, to complete. So my fear in our current setup is that that gap year means that those students don't have us mm. as resources anymore. And so some of them do come back to our school to apply, you know, again, but most don't, you know, don't do that. And so I struggle because I think I believe in that and I believe that life experience and having some more time and, you know, getting some space from school is important. And my fear about that as advice to to my students is that I just lose them, you know, yeah. and they lose the kind of resources and support they need to actually go. The momentum, to right? The like forward progress um, that they that that they're getting from you mm-hmm. towards that goal of going to college, right? Mm-hmm. What if what if we live? What if we because um, unencumbered by reality? Uh, what if we build a system where if you go to public school in the U.S. Um, you have a guidance counselor until you're 30, mm-hmm. right? Like somebody what on. What if in every single neighborhood there were community centers that provided college counselors and literacy classes, child development courses for parents? I, mean, I have a friend who lives in London that 
has something similar yeah. to this. Um, but the level of social services, mental health clinic yeah. in every neighborhood, you could imagine a totally holistic community center that would provide. Well, and that's one of the things that you get when you go to college, right? Is like access to the alumni center and the mm-hmm. job, the work, the, the, the career center the and like center, all that's right. Like all that stuff, clinic. like forever walk back on. Like I was at grad mm-hmm. school that I went to yesterday and they were like, you have access to our services for all time, mm-hmm. you know, but that doesn't happen in high school. I mean, everybody's just scrambling, I think, to kind of make it happen as best they can. Yeah. 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 Especially in under-resourced places. Are anybody, is anybody taking a year off at your school? Uh, No, no one in my school is taking a year off. Did you even think about it? Gap years were honestly a foreign concept to me. Um, I think a lot of kids uh, don't really think about gap years. Um, When I actually got accepted to one of the schools, the one that I'm actually now going to, they gave me a letter and it said, please check one of these boxes. I will be going to this college for the class of 2023. I will be taking a gap year and going to the class of 2024. I won't be going. And seeing that gap year option, I was like, wait, when did yeah. when did this happen? Like, when did yeah. this start becoming a thing? Um, and I think that for a lot of kids in my position, some of them are thinking like, oh, if I take a gap year, maybe I'm, am I going to forget things and then be ill prepared for college? Mm-hmm. And I don't want that to happen. But I think a lot of others were kind of like, I never knew that this was an option. And now that I am, now that it is, you know, May, June, it's about to be summer. And this is the first time that I'm finding out that I could have taken a gap year. Yeah. Like, well, it's a little too late now. Like, I probably would have wanted to start planning for this. I would even say in like my sophomore or junior year and being like, oh my gosh, after high school, I'm going to have a year to do whatever I right. want. It's not too planning. late. There's so many things. It's not too late if you want to. I mean, I, you know, that's, that's, that's overwhelmingly the case that colleges will do that. We'll take your, we'll take your enrollment deposit for that year. And then if you want to defer for a year, like they're happy, that's fine. Um, uh, I did a gap year um, and, and it was the best thing I ever did in my entire life. Hands down, like besides meet my wife and have my daughter. Can I obviously? Can I <laughs> clearly? That would have been trouble. They're huge uh, uh, podcast. It uh, would fans of 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 uh, it would your not, show. So I would hate for them to have heard, uh, heard that. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I would. Um, yeah, I I would not wish. Had you not said that, I would not wish this Mother's Day weekend on you. It would have been bad. Yeah. Um, can I ask what did you it's do? Hard enough before? because the Blazers are playing Game Seven, and like that's just really <laughs> terrible planning by the NBA. And I, I will be tweeting at them oh, yeah. about that. All right. But anyways, um, can I ask what you did with your gap year? Yeah, I traveled. So like I, I, um, I was lucky enough to you know have socked away some cash from like a weird job I had when I was a kid um, to uh, uh, be able to to finance uh, going to three different countries um, and it was cheaper than a year in college uh, and so this was like the this this old this place is, is still around now there are a bunch of these places that'll do this that basically find opportunities for you to you know you talk say what you want to do so I went to Guatemala so I wanted to learn how to speak Spanish better. Um, I speak Spanish fluently now. I majored in it in college. Um, I went to India, uh, where I worked for a documentary video production company there, and uh, got to go to the Taj Mahal on a day when it was closed to tourists. We had the whole place yeah. to ourselves, and I like have a picture like hugging the dome of the Taj Mahal. It's wild. And the guy that I was best friends with there turns out married a woman in New Jersey, and we're having dinner over at their house tomorrow night uh, with her sister because I helped her daughter go, go do the college process this year. That's I crazy. Mean, so, and then I went to Ireland for three and a half 
half months and I worked on farms for room and board. Um, <clears throat> listeners won't be able to to witness the fact that I look like I jumped off of a Lucky Charms box. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> that is a big reason why I went to Ireland. <laughs> Was to see if they would, uh, you know, Accept embrace it. me as one of their own, <laughs> and uh, they sort of did and sort of didn't, you yeah. know. Um, <clears throat> but it was really important for my identity to realize, like, no, I'm not Irish, I'm American. Yeah. So, I mean, just the lessons learned, the time spent contemplating, like, what I was going to do in college when I finally got there was priceless. Yeah. And furthermore, you know. Um, Parents in the room may be familiar with the the Rafi song, Shake Your Sillies Out. Yeah. I did a little shaking of my sillies out <laughs> in that gap year, such that yeah. I was laser focused. When I got to college, I got straight A's for the first time in my life, yeah. my first semester in college. And it's because I was really, really ready to be there. I was that much more ready to be there. And, you know, when you're in high school, like you, you're a 12th grader, the 11th graders are just like babies, you know, and like you would know. And so those are going to be your peers and you go to college, fuck that. You know, you're going to do that. Yeah. Um, but then all of a sudden, like, it doesn't matter anymore and you're the friends and it never matters ever again, like how much the, the fact there's a year apart. Yeah. But there is this conveyor belt thing that says you just need to do this that, that doesn't really have any justifiable reason for being the case other than it just is the social norm. No. I think freshman year is really challenging for a lot of students that go straight. And it certainly was for me. If you, I, you know, I left home for the first time. It was, I was lonely. I was alienated. I, you know, I think that it's a lot to endure, you know, your freshman year. And so I think having, yeah, having a little bit more stability, knowing a little bit more who you are and what you want to do, I think certainly could only benefit, you know, um, yeah. your whole college. And I sort of had, to, I mean, for lack of, I mean, I, I to, to return to the foresight and and the lack of it that people have in high school, like somehow I sort of realized, like, this is going to be the only time I'm going to get the chance to do this. Mm -hmm. Like after college, you got a six month grace period before you got to start paying your loans back. Mm -hmm. And then you got to get a job and they're not going to really just hold that job for you while you go fuck off for a year. Right. And then you're going to maybe meet somebody and then you get, you know, life gets more and more and more and more complicated. Like you've never had fewer attachments to just go and freewheel somewhere no. for a year but of understanding of course obviously that like there's just an enormous amount of privilege has to i think be there for anybody to contemplate doing that in the first place yeah. um and that it, like all of this stuff like it's just harder if you're poor no yeah i want to add on even a little bit i feel like a lot of my friends and i you know we kind of we feel like eggs and someone just kind of like took a pan and just totally like splat us and like we're all like broken shells and like our eggs and the yolk is everywhere. Oh man. And now we're spending <laughs> so college trying to like pick up those pieces and put them together. And that pan kind of being the college process in general being like, well, oh snap, I have to figure out what I want to do for the rest of my life or whatever. That's how we think yeah, about it. Yeah. And I'm doing that today. And that's a huge load to carry. And so now we're like this broken egg. And now we have to spend the next four years kind of putting those pieces back together and being like, okay, I'm taking a, taking a literature class. And I kind of like I that. See. Okay. I maybe is this what I want to do? Or I'm taking a computer science class or a mechanics class. Oh, maybe this is what I want to do. And I think that I didn't even think about it taking the idea of taking a gap year, but like that experience sounds incredible. And I could totally see how like, that would like change so many of my friends and myself. That it would sounds like they'd life. be okay if you showed up next year. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm thinking about just maybe calling up and seeing if that can yeah. happen. Yeah. Well, so um, 
What I don't what I don't want to do is land us in a place where all we've talked about is How depressing uh, everything. <laughs> what's what's gone wrong? So there are some um, there are some positive things happening, right? In in um, in the process, in the college application process, not least, I wanted to come back to um, something you pointed out earlier, Devin. The the um, your process, Luke, at um, the school that that you're about to go to, um, they have an incredible. I think in this in this case, let's call them out because they have a great process. So Olin College of Engineering is is where you're headed. Right. And they have a, a pretty terrific yeah. um, process. Tell us about the experience and how it was Shout different. Shout out Amon Milner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, Olin was unlike any other school I have ever seen and applied to or anything. Um, so it starts off like most other schools. You do a written application, you write essays, you answer questions, you take tests, blah, 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 blah. But then you get to the exciting part. So after they've looked over your application and been like, okay, you seem pretty cool. They invite you to the campus and you spend two days kind of taking classes and doing projects. And it's just an explosion of creativity and engineering and teamwork and collaboration. And, you know, it was so much fun. It didn't feel like an admissions process. Um, How many people? Well, at my... At my, they had three weekends of doing this. And at my weekend, they had, I think, roughly 100 kids. But Olin in general is a very small school, and that's why they can accomplish this. It's mm. like 86 kids a class is what they're shooting for. So, you know, they're very privileged that they're able to do this. But basically the way that it works is that you take a mock class, and then the students at Olin design a project and like a little challenge that you have to do. And mine, I had so much fun doing it. You had to... You worked with, you had a team and you had to work with another team, but you weren't allowed to talk to that team. You can only send message messages through post-it notes mm. that would be scrambled by the Olin students. <laughs> um, and then what you had to do is you each had to build, because the situation was that there was a time warp in the space-time continuum and you yeah. had to close it. And it the happens. only way to close it was that each team had to create like a little device that would hang off a wire and kind of sail down this you know, slanted wire and they would have to connect at some point while they were flying down the wire and then knock over a tower while they were touching. And it was a totally insane, like I was not thinking that college would be like that. Like Mm. who thinks that you would be doing this in college, but it was so much fun. And then they have on the side, they have little people with clipboards who are taking notes and noticing how you talk with the people on your team and what you guys are working on and, you know, how creative are you guys being? And then on top of that, they do like a more formal interview and stuff. But it really felt like what I really liked about that process is that it felt like I was getting to experience the school just as much as they were getting to experience me. Mm. And I think that a lot of that is lost uh, especially when you're applying to schools that have big names and they only get to see you through test scores and maybe an essay or two. Um, cause college is really, or something that I've found in this process is that the colleges that I was most attracted to were col- attracted to were colleges that I got to kind of interact with and see and kick the tires yeah, exactly. on the experience, right? Exactly. It's, you know, it. I think a lot of kids get focused on the fact that, like, I want to go to the big name brand college, and now how do I make myself 
look like the best applicant for them. Right. When in reality, I think having done this and now going to Olin, which I think is such a great fit for me, but may not be a fit for everyone. It's more about going to this, going to these colleges and presenting yourself and then seeing if you guys kind of match. It's almost like it should, there should be like a Tinder for college. It's like both of you guys have to swipe right. Mm-hmm. It's not just that the college has to swipe right and then you hope to get with the best one. Um, you have to figure out the one that works best for you. Yo, what's that look like? It's interesting. I mean, because in some, Tinder I mean, it, it kind of does work that way. Like on the one hand, you have to decide whether you're going to even apply. And then they have to decide whether they're going to admit you. And then you have to decide whether you're going to actually offer, take their offer of, of admission. Right. And so, you, you know, students do have a lot of agency in the process, kind of whether they know it or not. And I think that it's one of the things that I really enjoy doing in my job as a college counselor is helping them realize that, you know, that selling yourself to a school, they should feel lucky to have you. You know what I mean? Um, and, and the importance and to the extent that you can consider how a school is going to be a good fit for you, not just academically, but socially and financially and all that kind of stuff is really important. And it's a sophisticated, difficult thing to, to unpack if you're sort of left to your own devices, which is why it's so valuable to have counseling to help students think about it. But, um, but you know, I really like your idea of something that's maybe a little bit more immediate or something uh, cooler that is less stressful. And um, yeah, I don't know. Let's figure that out. I think the point, the really good point that you're making is like there, there are, um, we now have at our fingertips ways of making the process um, a lot more two way and a lot more yeah. intimate than like, I'm going to send this envelope snail mail, you know, yeah. to a, to a brick building someplace in another state or wherever you're applying. And, and, uh, somebody there who's behind closed door, nobody knows what they look like is going to review this thing. I think there's a way to bring more, more, a more humane process to this whole thing, um, that we haven't yet. And yeah, I think the way that they do it, or from how I look at it, the way that the common app does it right now is that you write this like personal statement essay and that's like your time to express yourself. But in what ended up happening for, I think I kind of got bit by this bug, but a lot of my friends got bit with this bug even more is that you kind of get in your mind that you want to go to one particular college. And for some reason that's the best fit for you. And so now rather than projecting yourself in that essay, it becomes, okay, what do they want to see? And then you lose that kind of intimate factor of like, okay, now I'm presenting myself and this is what I'm like. Do you like me? And, oh, this is what you're like. Do I like you? Colleges are complicit here in this, like that, that every college, because I mean, look, they do, it is a business to the extent that they need to bring in the tuition revenue to keep the lights on, but they are responsible for the messaging, you know, that they sell kids on that makes them whipped up into this frenzy. Like only that place can make me the person I want to be. And if you just flip through the average, you know, uh, admissions catalog from, or, or brochure from any school, like they're all saying some version of that message. And I mean, on the one hand, you can't blame them because they, they need to do everything they can to try to, you know, make it work for them. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, like colleges bear a lot of responsibility for selling kind of a bullshit dream mm-hmm. to everybody that there is such a thing as a dream college. I would recommend everybody read a, an essay by a friend of mine who's a college counselor now in Shanghai named Mark Moody that he wrote in the college uh, Chronicle of Higher Education called The Myth of Fit. 
And it's basically the premise is that like you need to grow into the experience. It should feel weird. You shouldn't get to college and it just feels like a nice warm bath. Like you, the, the, to the extent that it is an awkward, you know, kind of strange experience with different kinds of people is exactly the point, you know, that you go and you change and grow and learn as a function of being out of your comfort yeah. zone. So um, check that out. Mark Moody. Moody. Yeah. I will, I'll, if Chronicle, of, uh, it was Chronicle of Pirate. Yeah, it's a free one though. Okay, good. Yeah. So I'll link to it in the, yeah. in the show notes. Um, Devin, what are some of the, the exciting things you're witnessing on the side of higher education that you feel like are, are at least steps in the right direction? It's become a much more, um, uh, inclusive environment than ever before. More traditionally marginalized uh, communities are getting access to college than ever have. Um, there is a, a broad uh, coalition of people that are in place to uh, pretty much at every institution to support undocumented students, to support trans uh, gender student rights, um, to uh, establish more of an infrastructure on campus for observant Muslim students, um, so on and so forth. That that there's there's more of a of a of an inclusive community that looks like the United States of America and increasingly the entire world on more college campuses than no. has ever been the case. Another thing that is a really good thing that's moving in the right direction is test optional, which is uh, colleges uh, deciding that finally uh, they don't get any benefit from forcing their applicants to submit to the SAT and ACT uh, battery of uh, exam and, and, and prep for that exam. And I think that is a really great step in the right direction. And the University of Chicago uh, recently, it was about a year ago, was the um, most high profile school to go test optional. There isn't a school even kind of close to them on the U.S. News and World Report, which is, by the way, is the devil. And the reason that uh, everything sucks in generally when it comes to uh, college, in my humble opinion. Mm. Um, you're, but, and you're talking about the, the ranking system. The ranking system. Yeah. Well, that's all they are. That I, I mean, second that. yeah, they don't they don't actually make anything except college rankings anymore. But um, but the they're ranked like number three or something like that, and there's no one close to them that's doing it. But you're going to see more this summer uh, that are that are that are uh, very highly selective schools that are going to go test optional because everybody is waiting for somebody like the University of Chicago to do it. So they deserve a lot of credit for for what you're going to see coming next. Shout out University Shout of Chicago, where fun goes to live. <laughs> I knew the reputation, but I had never heard that. <laughs> they say die, but that's not true. Yeah, no, yeah. I'd never, I'd never heard. Yeah. That. Um, well, but but they have a lot of courage. I like that. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed, they receive. They they deserve mad props. Um, Leah, what's what's uh, it, uh, what do you see happening that feels right? That gives me hope. Anything? Um, you don't have to. No, I'm a very hopeful person. I mean, I, I place a lot of my hope in like the political activism that I do. And so I think some of the discussion we've been having around some of the structural underpinnings of this whole process, I think there's just a whole generation of young people who will be attending college or on their way to college that are very socially conscious and very much want 
to change the world in addition to all the other things, you know, they want to do. And so I think there are a number of movements underway, whether it's around transgender, you know, inclusivity and um, religious freedom and freedom of speech and um, all the way to policy questions around just open access to college, making college, you know, free, canceling student debt. I think that there's a lot of potential just in your generation in general. Everyone says that about younger generations, but I, I deeply feel that way. I've never experienced such a politically conscious and socially conscious group of young people yeah. than I have in the past few years. Amen. Second that. I'm very, very hopeful of that. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 anything we can do to push back against this whole kids these days thing that everybody, like, it's my least favorite way to be. You know, like, uh, especially when you have kids, (laughs) like, you know, or grandkids, you know, it's like celebrate these people. Like if you don't get it, that's your fault, you know? So I think, uh, yeah. Power to the young folks. Here, here. (sighs) Let's end it there. Even though it makes me sad because I have so many things, so many directions I want to take this conversation Let's in. Let's do it again. We yeah. didn't talk about the SAT. Whew. Yeah, we did not talk about the SAT. Another, um, time. Another time. Anything you you wish I had asked? That was my my last question. Is anything you wish I had asked that I didn't? No, I enjoyed our conversation. You want to talk about the SAT? Oh, no, I could literally talk about it for like another <laughs> hour, so we'll, we'll um, stop it before. Do either of you guys, that's a great um, That's a great point. We didn't touch enough on the SAT. If anyone who's listening wants to um, read uh, something important about sort of why or why not the SAT, do you guys have favorite articles you refer families to or, or uh, colleagues to? I don't refer families to, you know, to these articles, but there's a there was a good debate um, in Jacobin Magazine on the SAT that I thought was very interesting. And Wayne Owl, um, I follow, like, Rethinking Schools, which is a great publication. Mm-hmm. Wayne Owl is one of the editors of that publication, and I think he's brilliant on testing in general. And so follow him. Great. Wait, what was the name again? Wayne Owl, A-U is the last name. Wayne Owl. Mm-hmm. Great. There's a, the list of colleges that are test optional can be found at fairtest.org. There's about a thousand and, and growing. Um, there's also a friend of mine named John Bockenstedt, who is the vice president of enrollment at DePaul University in Chicago, is one of the first and earliest adopters of test optional for his college. And he has a, a really fantastic uh, blog that is called higheredatastories.blogspot.com. Mm. Nice. Tons of data and data visualization. It's really amazing. And he talks a lot about testing. Also, I did a couple of podcast episodes on this, uh, one with my friend who is a sort of a national leader in the test prep world who uh, is, you know, sort of as 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 woke as you can you can be on the matter, frankly, understanding what these tests are and aren't. Uh, and I talked to him and I also talked to a friend of mine, a local um, college access and, and testing expert named Akil Bello. Um, and uh, the podcast episode was him helping me register for the SAT. And we just recorded nice. the process of registering for it because oh, just that is, uh, is, is, a, is a Herculean task. That's a thing. Yeah. Awesome. Um, let's plug the podcast one more time. The Crush. <laughs> the Crush. Available wherever you find your podcasts. Go find The Crush. Um, Luke, anything you want to plug, point people to? Um, people you want to say hi to? Hi, mom. I've, I've always wanted to do that. Yeah, you did it. Leah, anything you want to um, 
plug point to tell people about um where can people find uh you um besides uh my school. besides <laughs> marching marching yeah i'm out in the streets or I'm through in my school. through brooklyn that's, yeah that's that's where i am i also want to say hi to my mom hi mom <laughs> Uh, we are recording this on Mother's Day weekend, though people won't hear it before Mother's Day. Um, guys, I can't thank you enough for spending the time. This has been an awesome, I think, tons of resources for people to dig into this topic. Mm-hmm. And I hope the first of more conversation we can have. Um, so much to dig into that it will take uh, many, many parts to this series. But uh, this was an awesome part one. So thank you, guys. Yeah. Thank, thank you, Mark. You. For more info about advertising with us, charitable sponsorship, or if you have show ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter, at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in Episode Zero, an Ithaca bomber, an engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No Such Thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org. This show would not be possible without the support from the good people at Mouse, a national youth development nonprofit that believes in technology as a force for good. Find us online at mouse.org.